welcome to Hiring Talent. I'm your host, Marie Ryan. In this podcast, CEOs, HR managers and recruiters share their insights to help you find talented employees. In this episode, Johnny Campbell from Social Talent explains how to attract talented employees to your organization, the key motivators for employees and the outlook for hiring people in 2022. What is Social Talent? Marie, Social Talent is a learning platform for organizations who are invested in improving their hiring, retention and development of their staff. So we're, if you like, like LinkedIn Learning or Masterclass, the app, but particularly focused on hiring, onboarding, engaging um, teams. So really people focused around largely those soft skills that are involved for those organizations really invest in talent. Okay, great. And when companies are smaller and less well known, how do they attract talented employees? Um, you have to be a little bit more scrappy, uh, Marie, in how you do it. You don't have the brand of the big companies. You probably don't have the budget of the big companies. And when Social Talent were starting out, one of the techniques that we used really well was to, instead of relying on companies or, or candidates, I should say, candidates or future employees to come to us, which they wouldn't because we had no brand uh, and no one knew who we were, we would go to them. So we would uh, do what's called sourcing. We target individuals and we basically reach out to them one by one and work on persuading them to come towards us. So we need to kind of hone our skills on that targeting, but also we'd have to have a very unique kind of brand proposition. We need to be able to stand out from the crowd, which actually isn't that difficult to do when you look at all the different job postings that are out there. They all look the same. Every company describes themselves the same, very polished, very nice, but we really put time and effort into it writing creative job posts, creative descriptions that really kind of got people's attention. We did scrappy things like making visual ads and video ads for our our jobs that still to this day, most companies don't do. Um, like that, I've seen billions of generic job specs that are exactly the same. So how did you make yours different from others? They were real, Marie, is probably why they were different. You know, rather than say, we are fact, 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 fact. We wrote our job specs in a very conversational human tone, took out the big words, the bullet points, etc., and really just kind of explained a story. And, and, and stories were at the heart of what we did in our original job ads. And we still do today. And we still train large enterprises of hundreds of thousands of employees to do better, which is tell a story. Storytelling is powerful. When you tell a story, why the jobs come about, what your journey is, the story you want to take, um, the challenges that you'll face. It's quite compelling reading, especially when you're faced with hundreds of other jobs that are all about, we are a blah, blah company with the following responsibilities and requirements. Tell a story and that really helps you stand out. So you can do a lot with words, Marie. I remember uh, you know, 10 years ago when I started first, first started training organizations, and they were largely smaller organizations and how to do this. We used a YouTube video we found where these two guys in the US, just for fun, were showing how they could sell uh, an old bike, literally an old rudder, as we'd say here in Ireland. And they put an ad out for a, a typical ad, how you just describe a bike and put it on, let's say, Craigslist or you know, buy and sell as it was back then in Ireland or done deal. And then they basically 
use the power of language, really creative language and storytelling. They told a story about the bike and where it had come from and who'd used it. And they used great evocative language. And they got something like 10 times the price that they would have got if it was just a standard ad. And it was an experiment largely for marketeers, but we used it to, we applied this to job advertising to say, you can use words as your superpower, right? If you have no budget, no brand, you can use words and they can go a long way to attract the right talent. Yeah, and in a jobs market where they're all completely generic, that would go a long way. And I think you wouldn't necessarily have to make it sound like the most fantastic company in the world. If you describe the company as it is at all, you're doing a lot more than 80% of job ads out there. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And when you're interviewing candidates, what qualities do you look for? So... I'd hate to think that someone listening to this would write down the qualities I look for and say, that's what we should do. It starts with asking yourself, what works in our organization? What makes someone successful? Um, why are we successful? And a lot of organizations will try this and they'll put down, for example, list of values and so on and so forth that they pick off the back of a book or they'll crowdsource it internally and do it quite quickly. It's something that we put an enormous amount of thought into over the years and we've condensed down over the last four years um, and we look for four values in social talent. I won't, I won't tell you what those values are because I don't want to try and colour somebody else's um, ideas. So I'll give you one of them, for example. Um, ambition is one of our values. And so that plus the three other values we interview for in, with everybody. We've taken time to really understand what does that mean? Why is that important? How does it contribute to success? Who in our organization demonstrates that? Why does it make them successful? And we did a lot of work to tease that out. Men come up with assessment questions that would properly assess for that, in our opinion. And we even kind of came up with what would a good answer sound like, a bad answer sound like? How would you rate those? We spent some time doing that. And that enables us to build, to hire for the right um, culture. And I use that word uh, cautiously because people talk about culture fit and they use it incorrectly sometimes which means that they would hire for sameness oh, we're all these type of people so we hire for that that's not what I mean I mean the values that underpin everybody in your organization who's successful no matter where they're from what backgrounds what they look like uh, what their beliefs are kind of core values that we need to align on once you kind of got that that part becomes easy. Then it's right, we, we, we are able to identify the right people for the organization. And then when you've got that, you have to build for every role what skills or experience or, or, or competencies or abilities you require. And that's just, you know, role by role, it's going to be different. And the more time you spend really digging into that, um, the more successful you'll be at understanding uh, what the right talent looks like, but also impressing upon that talent that you're a serious company who really understand what you're looking for. So or candidates, We'll talk about candidate experience and what makes a good candidate experience. And sometimes employers will think, oh, we'll give them freebies or we'll do give them soft drinks when they arrive, etc. One of the easiest ways to have a great candidate experience is to have a suitably challenging interview. And when I say suitably challenging, I don't mean you make up nonsense questions, trivia questions. It's that they're well thought out and they make sense for the role you're hiring for. And they make sense for the culture you've described. That's what candidates really like. And they go, oh, this is a serious company. And if they're going to these lengths to try and assess me, I'm probably going to join a company with great people. And that's what's kind of the subtly, subtly not said part of that process. So it's a long answer to your, to your short question, Marie, but it is really 
unique for every company. When you look at the values piece, right? So what makes a good person in your organization? What works as a person? When you have nailed that, that's for everybody. And then you look at each role and say, in this role, what do we need? Not what we love to have, but what's like core? What are the core things? And I'd stack rank them, prioritize, and then come up with great assessment questions and ways to try and tease that out of somebody. When you have your core team, what are the biggest motivators for employees? I lean on a book written about 10, maybe 15 years ago by Daniel Pink um, called Drive. Uh, and it's, I think it's the, the, sub, uh, the subheading is, I think, the surprising truth about what motivates us. And Dan Pink's research at the time uh, pulled together three core things that motiv- motivate people. Um, and they are pur- pur- purpose, mastery, and autonomy. And to this day, I think those three things are the universal motivators. And if you read anything about the psychology of motivation, you'll see that there's, uh, they mention elements of those always. So purpose, why does your business exist? If it's to make money, it's not really an interesting purpose. It could be to make um, a better product for a certain group of people. We want to make it the best product for this type of person because there isn't a very good product out there. That's a good purpose. It might be that you want to save the world. That's obviously an obvious purpose and it could be really interesting. It could be that you want to solve a particularly difficult problem that you think the world needs to have solved. Purpose is really important and we all buy into purpose. But also purpose could be about someone's personal purpose. I want to develop. I want to be able to, to, to have freedom. So purpose isn't just about the company purpose. It can be about revealing or giving someone the opportunity to, to um, have their own purpose uh, developed in the company. So purpose is the first part. Autonomy is really important. Um, giving people uh, autonomy. So we're seeing more of this with post-pandemic. You know, two years ago when the pandemic uh, came about, Marie, uh, we had to let people work from home in 50% of jobs or there or thereabouts. And we had to kind of, to a degree, give them autonomy for the first time in some companies because we couldn't watch what they were doing. You have to trust that. That's a powerful motivator. Someone to go, this is what I need to, need to get done. Here's how to do it. Here are the tools. Call me if you need help. That's essentially what autonomy is. And the person has to figure it out by themselves, knowing that you're there to support them if they need it, but not being told what to do every step of the way. Autonomy is really important. So you've got to give out autonomy to folks. And then the last piece is mastery. And mastery is the ability to gain new skills, coaching, feedback, training courses. Um, if somebody feels that they are being developed, they are adding to their skills, they are growing as a person, that's going to be quite motivating. So I know it sounds trite and simple, but if you keep to those three things, it's not easy to do as an organization, you'll have, uh, you'll have much more engaged people. Um, in terms of motivators, I know you said about like soft drinks and that's a little bit gimmicky, but what are inexpensive motivators for employees in a company? So obviously the obvious thing is salary, right? We all talk about it's being the biggest motivator. Um, studies in late 2021 indicate that salary is no longer the biggest motivator. Flexibility is. And when you dig into it, um, you might think it's flexibility in terms of where you work. So it's work from home. And that's a thing. Of course it is. But it is also about flexibility of when you work and what you work on. So the modern companies that are evolving their kind of uh, talent structures are looking at work on a continuum of probably three axes, uh, Marie. And that is flexibility around where you work. Of course, we all saw that, saw that at the beginning of the pandemic. When you work. So not having to be there nine to five, kind of do it, do it to a deadline, but when you do it or how many hours you do it, which days is up to you. 
And what you work on is another part of that. It, it feeds into autonomy, which is here's the goal. Um, this is what you need to achieve. How you do it's up to you, as opposed to being more task oriented. So those three things are part of that flexibility piece that is emerging as the biggest motivator for employees. Now, I must caveat that by saying you have to pay the base minimum salary. I don't mean uh, the cheapest or, 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 or minimum wage. There's a certain level of salary that if you're not paying that, then people aren't going to be motivated by flexibility and anything else because you're just not paying them enough. And they need money. They need to pay the bills. They need to be able to put some savings away. It's more when you've reached that minimum threshold. It's not necessarily about additional salary. It's about um, about that flexibility. And that's probably the primary biggest motivator for employees. And for companies in Ireland competing against massive US multinationals, we know we won't win the salary war. So you have to be able to win the war on those other elements. Yeah. And um, one thing that I've heard um, recently is results-based work, which is the idea that you have a certain amount of output that you need to produce. Uh, and once you have it done, no matter how you do it, it's done. Uh, and that's all you need to do. So if you're a salesperson and you're expected to make a certain amount of deals, once you've done that, it's done. You can take the rest of the, the day off or, or whatever uh, it might be. Exactly. It's, it's a case of you know, clarity around the output. Um, and how we measure the output, which of course sales is an easy one. You got to produce a certain amount of sales and revenue, no problem. Other jobs are harder. Like if you're a customer support, you know what is the output? Um, is it the number of successful tickets you close? Is it the happiest of your customer? You know you kind of have to be there to respond to somebody. Um, so speedy response could be a thing. Um, so. It isn't always easy in every job to look at the output. So an accountant, you might have to produce the financial accounts, produce the management accounts by a certain date, you know, get the invoices out, get the collect the cash to a certain level. Um, but the more you focus on clarity around the outputs and then trust the employee, um, that's back to the autonomy piece and give them the skills back to mastery um, around that and the motivation, which is your purpose piece. Um, the more you do that, then you will have that motivation. But it does. It is focusing on outputs to your point, Marie. Whereas we used to be a more input society. If I put in eight hours a day, if I can see the person at their desk typing on their keyboard, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable they're working hard. That's nonsense, right? Uh, we've all seen, and the research has shown, that productivity in the pandemic when everyone was forced to work from home from their office jobs, in, in those instances, um, productivity generally went up. Uh, but there was an element of burnout as well that is that is one to watch. So it's about watching out for those things whilst you know reveling in the benefits of this kind of new world of work. It's making sure you aren't uh, having your team burn out, uh, which can happen in a kind of remote environment. What were the biggest insights you learned from social talents when recruiting? So uh, the early courses that we would have developed, Marie, I wrote. So uh, I guess. Um, to say I learned from social talent would have been uh, would have been uh, incorrect. But later on, when we started bringing in additional speakers in new areas beyond my expertise, uh, again my expertise was in something called sourcing and recruiting, and I was comfortable that I was one of the best I thought in the world at the time in sourcing. So I was comfortable putting myself out there as that expert. But when I got in, got into other areas of hiring and interviewing, I wasn't the best in the world. I wasn't even one of the best in the world. So we went out and we found people who are the best in the world. And then we've expanded that to topics like onboarding, leadership, management, diversity, inclusion, and found tons of others. 
I learn every day. Uh, this morning, I would have held a session with uh, my peers in our leadership team where we reviewed our weekly learning. And we were learning this week about individuals who were formerly incarcerated. And we also learned uh, about individuals with neurodiversity and the challenges of those communities finding jobs and the obstacles that are presented to them and then what recruiters and hiring managers and organizations can do to break down those barriers. Fascinated by that, you know, learned so much from personal stories from individ an individual who was in locked up for 23 years uh, at 19 years of age, who's only been released from prison in the last 10 months, telling a story about how he's trying to find a job and the challenges of entering the workforce. Fascinating. An individual who worked under George Bush, who had um, uh, neurodiversity issues around uh, kleptomania and how they presented themselves and the challenges then in the workforce for him. Uh, you know, a PhD educated individual who's worked at the highest levels of government, but how that panned out for him. These are fascinating stories told by, told by amazing storytellers and teachers that are on the social talent platform. So I learn every day about these things. But when you think about recruiting, one of the first big insights I had from one of our external speakers that might resonate with many of your listeners today uh, was a friend of mine called John Vastalika. And John's based in Seattle, uh, Washington in the US. And he was the first head of recruitment for Amazon back in the early days, working directly under Jeff, Be Jeff Bezos. And he's one of the world's experts on interviewing and something called being a talent advisor. And talent advisory really is about a recruiter who sees herself not as someone who just goes and fills the job, but who challenges the manager looking to try and recruit and consults with them around what they need. And that's a particularly important skill to have in the current market. So if any of your listeners have a recruiter or HR person or someone who does recruitment, it's not to see that person as someone who has to just do what you ask them to do, as in, I know what I want, go do that. A really good recruiter these days comes back and says, Marie, we can't find you that kind of person. Let me explain why. And not only that, asks you, what do you really need? And digs into, you know, what are the requirements? What are the outputs back to that question that you're looking for? And then consults with you around what kind of person could we find today that could do that? Who's realistic about things like the salary and compensation you offer to go, listen, you know, Google or Facebook are offering double what we're offering. Let's not go after those kind of people. They won't hire this kind of person. And I think we could find that person. And with a bit of training, they could do our job and be really good. And, you know, because they won't get the job in this big company, they might be really attracted to us, our company. So it's that consulting around knowing what the market looks like, knowing what's out there, and being able to build a solid proposition about what can we hire, as opposed to copying and pasting everyone else's job spec. So this kind of advisory piece was, was really insightful when I first learned about it five years ago, because I didn't really do that formally as a recruiter, Marie. And in particular, one, one aspect of that that John shares on his training on our platform today, which resonates massively with our with our customers, and I'd like to share with your listeners, is that when, if you are that recruiter and you go into a meeting with that hiring manager, that leader who's looking to hire for her team, is don't just start talking about the job straight away. Our temptation is to talk about, let's go into the job spec. What do you need? What, what does this person do? You focus instead, first of all, on what are your priorities? Like, is speed a priority? Is, is cost a priority? We don't have much budget. Um, is diversity a priority here? Um, is quality a, pr a priority? And uh, hiring manager might say they're all a priority, but it's, it's, it's coaching her to say, well, I can't give you everything. If you were to give on one of those or two of those, what would they be? So you start with understanding someone's pr priorities. Second of all, you then ask them about the process. What kind of process do you want to run here? Like, do you want to do three interviews, two interviews? Uh, if it's speed, for example, we've identified as the most important thing, I assume we're going to move fast and we're going to do all the interviews in one week if I have somebody. 
Will you give me time in your diary? Can you book out slots for me? Can you agree to come back to me in 15 minutes when I send you a CV? You establish all those kind of criteria around the process. And only when you've understood the priorities, defined the process, do you start talking about the job. Because if you think about it, Marie, you can't talk about the job until you know those things. In fact, it will completely shift the conversation you'll have with the manager about the job. Once you've established quality is the most important thing, I'll wait as long as I have to for someone who's brilliant and you know I'll give you all the time and support you need. Great. Well then let's look at the requirement and look at look at what we do. So you need to understand the context, you need to understand the priorities. And and they're the conversations to have with your recruiter. And it could be an external recruitment firm you're using if you're a smaller company and don't have someone yourself. It's be flexible. We'd be willing to engage in that way with a recruiter. Because that's what a great recruiter uh, that's what a great, great recruiter does. They don't just accept your requirement and go look for it. They consult with you and go, yeah, you need someone to do what? To make sales? Okay. In this current market, based on what you offer and who you are, here's my advice on how we can find someone who could make sales with you. And they're hopefully someone who's very insightful about the market. And you're hopefully a manager who'll listen and work with them to get the right person. So in that case, rather than your employee being a recruiter, they're almost like a recruitment partner. They very much are. We call them a talent acquisition partner, a recruiting partner, and that is that is very much the word to use. You're right there, Marie. It's it's a partner. Uh, they don't work for you on this assignment. They work with you to fill the job. How do you find somebody with that mindset rather than someone who's checking a box? Here's the role I need to fill. I'm going to fill it. Thanks very much. Well. I guess if you're looking to find somebody for a once-off role, you've just got to keep looking until somebody is is you know talking to you in that way, challenging you with those questions. How do you create someone like that? Um, I think the, you encourage them to understand the market. They need to understand the marketplace, what's happening, the availability of talent, where to find such talent, what salaries they're being offered, who else is hiring for that for them at the moment, what does a good interview process look like? So they need to be able to bring all that to the table. The market dynamics. Um, the candidate market dynamics and process expertise. You as the manager need to understand what works for you, what you've seen in the past, what your team structure is, the right to your point values that you hire for, are skills you need in this role. And you bring that to the table, the great recruiter brings the other elements to the table. And together as a team, then you can really solve it. Great. And we know there's a talent crunch at the moment. What do you think the outlook is for recruitment in 2022? So it's going to remain difficult. Um, there's some some hope in that, you know, in Ireland, the PUP payments are in other parts of the world, the payments that are being made um, to subsidise individuals who were off uh, for COVID uh, should begin to fall away if they haven't already fallen away uh, in 2022. Uh, and so that might add more folks to the workforce who are still not not, not uh, willing to contribute because unemployment levels aren't back down yet to the levels they were pre-pandemic, not quite, which means there is still a gap or an opportunity there. But really, it's going to continue to be difficult. For the skill sets that I imagine most of us are going to really want to hire for, it's going to continue to be difficult. If you're in retail, hospitality, customer-facing roles, healthcare, you're finding that there's a real uh, knee-jerk reaction to uh, working in you know in front of somebody. People are concerned about their health, their risk, their exposure. And so a lot of folks have moved away from those industries. You're seeing 50% inflation on, on salaries and, and hourly rates in those industries, in, in retail, etc. So that's going to be a continuing challenge because the pandemic you know isn't going away. It's going to be endemic um, for a long time. So that will probably persist. 
Um, and then you have folks who want to retrain into other jobs, office jobs. So you're going to have this continuing challenge. And I think the important thing as an employer to, 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 to think about is flexibility. So flexibility in the type of person you would have always hired. You know, maybe you've always hired someone with experience. And you go, okay, let's look at the capabilities and see how can we coach someone or develop them or build a training academy for them. You know, build some formal way of giving them the skills quite quickly so that they can hit the ground running because we can't get people who've done this before. And that could be for uh, an in-person retail customer-facing job um, or it could be an office job, you know. I take recruiting as an example, Marie. Um, a lot of our customers, they can't find recruiters. It's one of the hardest skill sets to find. Um, but th that industry, that sector is looking at teachers, store managers, uh, uh, other people from different industries and saying they, they, you know, they have business experience or life experience and they just need to know the technicality of recruiting, but they're very comfortable dealing with people and conversing and challenging, uh, dealing with challenging issues. So, so therefore, how can we just give them the recruiting skills? And so there's a willingness to retrain. There's a willingness to consider individuals from perhaps uh, underserved um, minorities who haven't been given the opportunity before and therefore don't maybe have the right experience from our the, the lens of the pre-2020 recruiters and hiring managers. And you're saying, well, what if, you know, there's great, great talent here. What if we went to some of those underserved markets, uh, our communities, and we're a little bit more open-minded about how we work with those individuals. I spoke um, yesterday with a good friend of mine, Colin Donnery, who runs a tourist NUA here in Ireland, which uh, has put 45,000 long-term unemployed individuals back to work in the last four or five years. And, you know, he describes how they work with organizations who've had this open mindset to kind of work with them around the challenges for some of the long-term employees. Maybe I haven't worked for seven or eight years. It's not as simple as just hiring somebody. You have to support someone like that in a different way than you would a traditional employee. Um, so it's flexibility. I think the companies that will win in 2022 in terms of recruiting are the ones that are going to be the most flexible, most open-minded. I don't mean settling for less. Just to be clear, Marie, you're not selling for less. You're just opening your, opening your mind to where talent can come from and not being so linear as perhaps we were in the past. Yeah, flexibility is definitely an important thing. Uh, the funny thing is, for years, people were asking to work from home and to have a hybrid model, and companies were saying no, no, no. Then the pandemic happened, and suddenly, rather than closing their companies, the businesses were well able to let people work from home. So the flexible flexibility, it's just a mindset. Uh, and once they're able to be open-minded to it, the opportunities arise. Like you're saying, being flexible in terms of who they hire, like you might hire people who have been long-term unemployed or maybe people who are neurodiverse once you have a certain amount of supports in place for them you could have fantastically talented uh, great employees that stay with you and work hard for a long time yeah so certainly flexibility is key um there's a lot of um overlap between recruitment and marketing so what can recruiters learn from marketing so I think rather than thinking about what can we learn from marketing and the overlap, I'd say that both recruiting and marketing have a lot to learn from decision science um, and behavioral science, behavioral economics. Um, I think it's a slight myth to say that, you know, recruitment's like marketing. It's like, no, no, no. Both of them are like decision science. Learn how people make decisions. Learn about what drives people's behaviors. And you can be a great marketeer and a great recruiter. So I, rather than reading a marketing book, I'd look at the work of the likes of Daniel Kahneman, 
He won the, no- won the Nobel Prize for decision making. I'd look at um, and his 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 uh, now deceased partner Amos Tversky, who did an amazing amount of research over the last 30, 40 years in terms of decision making. I'd look at some of the uh, fantastic individuals coming out of the University of Chicago and their uh, economic school that write papers on decision-making. Once you get into decision-making, and the, the, the Bible book on this is Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman, uh, which really describes beautifully how we all make decisions. It gives you an insight in terms of how people could make a purchase, why they'd be influenced in certain ways. And that applies to marketing, but also applies to recruiting. It also applies to you know, negotiating uh, a discount on something you're buying in the store or buying a new car. Or, um, it also applies to how you persuade your partner to go out to the, your favorite restaurant the weekend and not their favorite restaurant. So its applica- applicability is huge. But I'd say, you know, rather than focusing on marketing, focus on the actual common ground between marketing and recruiting in other areas, which is decision science and that behavioral psychology, which is fascinating. I think should be taught at schools because it's so paramount to everything we do. Yeah, uh, that sounds very similar to soft skills, which is a term that I loathe because I think soft skills um, are really important and should be thought at school, influence, communication, decision making. They're all interlinked and all underpinned by the same things. Yeah. And finally, what's your opinion on Glassdoor? So Glassdoor, I think, is fantastic um tool it's changed the world of recruiting and it's it's you know it's just a, the recruiting version of something else that's out there in, in nearly every sector which is you know being able to get sentiment and a score on different things and get you know giving a voice to to uh to everyone you know we, we used to have this um world where you didn't have really any idea if a company was good or not to work for, for you just had to rely on what they said um so it was unfair balance of information, you know, between the job seeker and the company. Company really knew what it was like, but the job seekers didn't. And that switched in the last decade uh, in all areas, restaurants, hotels, stores, and recruiting. And Glassdoor pioneered that. And no surprise that its founders came from background in TripAdvisor and other businesses like that. They just applied it to recruiting. Um, but as an employer, I remember seeing my first negative Glassdoor review. I wanted to take it down. That's not fair. That's disgraceful. That's that's not quite the truth. But it was that person's perspective. And then the second one came in. I was because there were negative reviews of Glassdoor of social talent on Glassdoor to, to this day. But rather than getting upset about the fact, the fact that some people will not like the experience, the interview experience, they will not like being an employee, and they will post it publicly. And yes, you know Glassdoor and other sites like it are full of extremists, extremists who hate you, and extremists who love you. There's nobody in the middle. People in the middle just don't care enough to actually write a review. You have to love something or hate something to write a review in most cases. So it's full of extremists, but on balance, it's probably a fair reflection and the score is pretty accurate. And directionally, if you improve or disprove, it's probably accurate as well. You're improving or disproving on whatever your base was. So I'd say to employers, embrace it, own it. Um, don't game it. Cheating's never going to be right because you'll be found out. Again, back to this information asymmetry concept that's emerged in the last uh, uh, decade. Um, people will find out that you're lying if you try and you know make your glass door review look really good. Do the things in your own organization to make yourself a really good company to work for. Have a really good and fair hiring process and Glassdoor will look after itself. 
So it's a good barometer, or it's one of the barometers to, to think about. But don't focus on fixing your glass store rating. Focus on being a great employer and focus on a great hiring process, and it will look better over time. Trust me, we did that. We said, let's not focus on Glassdoor. Let's just focus on being a brilliant company. And then you forget about Glassdoor until somebody says, hey, you've got a great rating. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. And you look back and go, well, that's probably fair because we're better. And I look back a couple of years later and go, do you know what? When those negative reviews are made, we weren't as good a company as we are today. We didn't have a good hiring process. It's probably fair that there's a few negative comments in there. So it's about perspective. Don't worry about Glassdoor. It's a great way for the world to see if you are good or not. And it can be a decent measure. Focus on being a great employer and a great hiring organization. And it will look after itself. That's great. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for tuning in to the Hiring Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want more content like this, be sure to subscribe and visit our site, hirehive.com.